0: So, I'll maybe begin this afternoon with a little recap to see if um, the map that I'm following is is clear to you and to see if it's clear to me. Uh, So... A couple of days ago, we spoke about what I was calling the biological self, although I was thinking this afternoon maybe instinctual self would be in a better description. And we looked at the extinctu- the instinctual sense of self through these three drives, sexual, survival, and social. Right? Three aspects of our biology that contribute to the way we experience and and act out the sense of being me. And the way the sense of this bodily life you know, is egocentric, tends to be egocentric. And then yesterday, we looked at the psychological sense of self. And and whereas we looked at three drives for the extinctual self, and yesterday we looked at three um, mechanisms Right? The self-image, self-reinforcement, and self-judgment, as ways in which this bodily life really seems to be about me and my issues and my history, etc., and how the particular I, me, and minus, the particular personalness of things, uh, has such an impact and draws such a lot of attention, obsession, even. And then today I'd like to look at the existential sense of self and through three movements or transformations. The movement from thingness to process, from knowing to loving, and from the subjective to the inclusive. and I'll unpack those a little as I go along. Maybe first just to say a little what I mean by the word existential. Which is really the sense that that I take what's here to be an entity right I take what's here as if it exists and in some ways I that seems self-evident right it's in one way it's the thing we're almost the most sure of is that I'm here Everything else seems unreliable but I'm here I mean I seem unreliable too but I'm at least the sense of myself seems like a constant. Even though that actually doesn't bear up to our examination, when you look at the picture of yourself as a child. Somehow you assume a constant. You say that yes, that was me, and this is me, but you can't find any constancy. Think, right? so look at yourself at five years old. It's like who, who's that guy? It's very noticeable with me for my, chil- with my children, who are now. Uh, 17 and 21 and when I look at pictures of them as children there's something kind of sweet and nostalgic about it, but there's also actually something painful about it, it's like looking at pictures of people who are no longer there, it's like this memory of loved ones, because how they were when they were two and three and we've got all these lovely photographs of them covered in jam, or whatever they <laughs> were like at two or three it's that they're gone they're gone so we, we, the, the continuity that we perceive is largely assumed. It's assumed, and yet we, we, we feel like it, because our measure, we don't really have that breadth. right How was I at five? How was I at 20? How am I here? How might I be in another 10, 20, 30? We just have this assumed sense of continuity, of enduringness, of entityhood. And in the last days we've explored some of the ways in which this sense of self gets maintained, instinctually, psychologically. But more primarily, even than that, is just the tendency to conceive in terms of things when we look out at the world we tend to see a world of things. When we look out we see I see you and you and you and you and you. When we go outside and we see the trees and the sky and the ground and the grass. And we tend to nounify everything. You know what I mean when I say that? To n- nounify? You know, to, to make something into a thing. Something we can put the in front of. The people. The place. The retreat. The breath. The body. See how that works? I've just got a bunch of things. The is and the that's. And yet... As we've been noticing, and as some of you have been reporting and speaking to me and speaking in the hall, when we pay deep attention, sincere attention, real attention, to what we call the body, to what we call me, the discreteness of here and there, this and that, starts to fall away. And we find a much more nebulous sense of things. We looked in the previous meditation session at just the elemental nature of this life. The way everything that we experience as who I take myself to be. Right? The, this This changing field of sensation and vibration, which is everything we experience is, right, changes in this field of sensation and vibration, everything can be just reduced to an elemental experience, an interplay of different levels and quantities of the earth, air, fire, water element, density, (coughs) movement and fluidity, temperature and space. And equally, of course, the lack of those elements as well. In fact, our usual sense of self is quite dependent on rather fine amount, a fine balance of those different elements. And if we get too much or too little of any one of those elements, we start to go into a kind of panic. Right? If we get too hot, too hot, too hot, too hot, oh my God! Right? Or... Not enough heat element, too cold, too cold, too cold, oh my God. Right? How We can feel our survival is threatened and, you know, biological survival is threatened by any of those things. Right? Not enough of the space element. we feel very, very, very dense, it's very uncomfortable, right? The kind of the, the agony of feeling I've got no space. Some of the times people look the most, um, the most contracted and fearful. And what they say is, I feel like I've got no space. Similarly, too much space. If I just c- c- don't recognize it myself in a usual way. Sometimes in meditation. We spoke the other day about that sense of a kind of vastness that can come across us. And sometimes we can, we can experience that as quite threatening to our usual sense of ourselves, which is dependent on this kind of regular, familiar balance of elemental life. But paying attention in that way, experience as elemental, helps to undo the sense of thingness. The sense that this is... um, that this body is a thing. I can't, if you look over the last few days, have you found one thing in your experience? Have you found anything? Just cast your mind back over the last few days. Can you point now to anything you found? Or have you just found process? movement, change, dance of sensation and vibration. Because if so, that's significant. Significant because it significantly undermines our tendency to relate to this body, this life and this world as if it's all things. So when I say me, when I say, my body, or in this strange Buddhist world where you attempt to be less identified, and we say, the body, right? as if it's nothing to do with me, it's just the, the, the body. We may speak and act and move and refer to me and refer to the body, but have we believed that languaging so much that there's actually an existential belief? That's where we start off with. That's just the way (coughs) our sense, healthy sense of self, develops around body and uh, processes as who I am. But the evolution of that understanding, the further development of that healthy evolution, is to develop beyond this thingness. One of the ways the Buddha talks about that is in terms of what in the Pali is called the khandhas, which is usually translated as the aggregates. a rather unusual word, and I don't think a particularly helpful one. I actually think of it as processes is a better word. The processes. So the Buddha says, what's human life composed of? These five khandhas, these five processes. The process of body. Right. Uh, physical. The earth, the air, the water, the space element. And like we say, we can actually find all our experience there. What's this life composed of? Body expressing like this. (coughs) Affect as well. Second kanda, the second process. The process of affect, right? That experience impacts on us in a certain way. It impacts us pleasantly or unpleasantly. Or not one or the other. And that's just part of human experience. A- an absolute inescapable part. But there's no thingness in it. Things are... It's not that there are, there are pleasant things and there are unpleasant things. There's just the process of affect. We might say, well, what about chocolate? Right? Ch- chocolate's pleasant. But only at the beginning. Right, after the third or fourth bar. <laughs> right, it's not pleasant anymore. Right? Which is important, because the, cho- the, the pleasantness isn't inherent. Chocolate isn't a pleasant thing. But this elemental life, but it knows the, the <coughs> constant movement of pleasant or unpleasant affect. And of course, what, what might be pleasant affect for one, might be unpleasant affect for another. Some of us might find it nice and warm in here. Pleasant affect. Some of us might find it uncomfortably stuffy in here. Unpleasant affect. Just process. Then there's perception. Third of the khandhas, third process perception. Right? Eyes meeting sights, ears meeting sounds. The perception of life, perceptive experience. The interplay, the way, extraordinary, you know, complex process. When you try to study it, you can't, you can't find all the constituent parts. But the interplay of memory and recognition and sensory contact and object that's able to say, oh, I know you. Oh, this is where I am. Oh, that's a tree. Right? Helpful process, but just that process. Things what we call things, don't appear as things. They appear as perceptions marked by affect impacting these elements. Please, if you, if you find anything in what I'm saying, please point it out to me. But otherwise, just let yourself kind of consider and, and sense as we explore And sense the, into, anywhere the assumption of thingness arises. And see if you can look at whatever appears as a thing and actually see whether it is or not. Or whether it's process. Elements. Affects. Perceptions. States. Fourth kanda, states of mind. Attitudes. The way our response to the various stimuli of life, what we call inner or outer, you know, produce an attitude towards them. The, the various moods of the soul, we might say. Happiness, joy, or boredom, or um, confusion, or whatever it might be. The way our experience is coloured by the attitude with which we meet experience. The fact that our, our, our human experience gets provoked into different expressions, and some of those expressions can cause us a lot of uh, pain and difficulty right? hurt, anger, hatred, uh, etc. And some of them are the sub- and they can be the sublime expressions of human life: love, creativity, joy, wisdom. what's missing body affect perceptions states of mind consciousness, consciousness. <laughs> and consciousness right just the process of consciousness the the fact like we've been exp- exploring that the light of knowing is on consciousness isn't a thing we can't find it however hard we look we can't locate it even though for some strange reason we often are convinced that it lives in my head right but we can't find it and for all the interesting stuff that's happening in neuropsychology and neuroscience one of the fundamental delusions is that we're going to find consciousness, yeah. as if consciousness exists as a thing. It's what it? Sorry. It's the, it's the only constant, well. I would be wary of drawing any conclusions. About consciousness, but it's it the if the if the sense of consciousness is constant, really pay attention to that s- seeming constancy right. there's an i would i would speak about it rather than as a constant as it's it's very available it's always available. I don't know about constancy because I certainly have moments where where I can't access consciousness as a constant. Deep sleep, for example. General anesthetic, even more than deep sleep. In fact, general anesthetic was a very good uh, rec- help by in recognizing how there's still some consciousness left in deep sleep. Because the, if you've ever had general anesthetic, the sense of interruption in consciousness is much more uh, profound, much more uh, uh, dense than in deep sleep but I wouldn't assume an absolute constancy we have to wait for death to find that out but there's certainly an availability right whatever the experience whatever's happening in the body whatever the state of mind whatever the affect is going on it's known so I think what you're calling that constancy is really is worth paying attention to. It's actually a great refuge for practice to trust the always available nature of awareness. And the way it's spoken about in the, the when the Buddha talks about the kandhas is as the consciousness actually, not as constancy, but arising in conjunction with each experience. So that the... With the body, the perceptive organ, with the perception, with the affect, with the state, the consciousness is there, arises with that which is known. And the reason it's spoken about like that is because can you find... Sense of consciousness as constant. Can you find consciousness without something that consciousness is knowing. Oh, okay, look, at, let's, I, I don't want to assume an answer to that. But generally, right, knowing and the known. You, there can't be an object, a thing, a seeming thing, without the knowing of it. It also seems, at least conventionally, most of the, there can't be the knowing, without something that's known. So if this feels a little mind-boggling, don't worry about it. But the the important part being, anywhere where we look for thingness, all we find is process. And this isn't an idea for us to take on. It's the invitation to explore our experience so that that which we take as the most fundamental thing me we can actually get some relief from that narrow, tight, limited perception, the relief of actually letting this be what it is, which is process fluid alive, dynamic full of possibility undefinable by the narrow criteria of making things out of everything So thingness, to process, undoes that seeming existential certainty that I'm here and I'm a thing. And then that movement which we could call, well, which I'm going to call from knowing to loving. And when we speak about knowing in the conventional sense, we look about how we know something, and it's tied to that sense of thingness, the knowing that we do tends to isolate what's known. Right? I look out at you, you look out at me, and you know me. Oh, that's Martin at the front. But the knowing s- tends to pinpoint the object. Right? Oh, I know who that is. I know what that is. I know what this is. I recognize that. And in the pinpointing, we, we, um, we do away with the context. We forget that what we've known, Martin in this case, if you're looking this in my direction, is inseparable from all that's not Martin. The space around me can't actually find the one without the other. But the knowing tends to hone in tends to isolate. That's our usual mode of operation. Right? Isolating details. This and that. Here and there. Me and you. Like and don't like. And our practice invites us to actually to relax. That isolating. That pinpointing. It invites us rather than knowing in that narrow sense, rather than trying to know what is, and you know yourself how much struggle there can be in this practice of trying to figure it out, trying to know what's happening, trying to squeeze your experience into some description of what's being spoken about in the teachings. We're asked to relax that kind of isolated knowing, In a way that we might call loving, or else to relax into allowing what's here, seeing it in a fuller context. The qualities of awareness that we've been mentioning all week, and the encouragement in the way we've been paying attention to our experience to. be in contact with or intimate with. I mean, speaking about awareness as intimate with what's happening. To explore and find out. Right, to be curious about what's happening. And to be gentle and allowing, to care for what's happening. Those qualities of awareness that some of you are familiar with me speaking about as contact, curiosity and care. Those are the the, the the fundamental qualities of awareness. It knows, it explores, it senses into, it reveals what it knows. And awareness holds what happens gently, caringly. And those qualities, contact, curiosity and care, actually are pretty good description of love. Love is contactful. Love doesn't want to, to know, to isolate. <laughs> love wants to absorb into, to unite with, to blend, like we've been saying, like water and milk. Love wants to be close to what's seen, what's experienced, intimate with. Love wants to find out more. One wants to, oh, ex- love wants to explore. And love allows, rather than judges. Love makes room for, rather than pinpoints. Love cares. And that movement from l- knowing, in the, in the sort of divided up way that we do, to loving, it's really a movement of Relaxing. Relaxing our view. Relaxing our approach. Love, the way we know the experience of love is as a a, a kind of melting in the heart. A sweetness, a warmth. Oh. One of my teachers once said, what seemed to me a deceptively simple statement, a relaxed body is an awakened body. It it seemed simplistic to me, as I say. But increasingly, and in the way that we've been focusing on practice of making it really all about this embodiment, this being in this body, the way we wake up is as a progressive relaxation, a release, a dropping of the burden of our narrowness and our judgment and our, our um, investment in the various things that hijack our attention. To love what's happening is, means to relax around it relax with it. It doesn't mean you have to like it. To love what's here means to be willing to be in contact, to be willing to be curious, to be willing to care for what's here, whether I like it or not. the resolution of the existential self, uh, sense of self is going from trying to know ourselves and it, I know it sounds like a bit of a spiritual cliche but to loving ourselves. That doesn't mean that we love some of what we see it doesn't mean we love or, uh, some of our actions some of our habits But it means there's this attitude of relaxing around ourselves, being tolerant with ourselves, being kind with ourselves, being interested in ourselves, being contactful with ourselves, curious about ourselves, caring for ourselves. And the irony is that the sense of self that seems to have so much existential um, interest for us in being loved, allowed, made room for, cared for, can relax. The sense of self can relax. Relax means it gets looser, it gets freer, it gets wider. We take it less personally. We move from the struggle to know to the capacity to love this. To love this. This that's arising. This that's showing itself. This that's worthy of our attention. This that's worthy of our care. This experience, this moment, this confusion, this ache, this struggle. The more gently and caringly we hold it, the more it naturally relaxes. nothingness to process knowing to loving subjective to inclusive so we generally take ourselves to be the subject of our life and there's no denying that whatever's going on it's happening here right that there is a perceptual center to this experience right there's such a perceptual center that wherever i go in the universe i seem to be right in the center of it right it's fantastic <laughs> right? i actually turn out to be it turns out i am the center of the universe <laughs> right? it extends equally in all directions infinitely and right in the middle of it <laughs> But unfortunately it's not just me. <laughs> right. That's that's the human experience. That's the subjective experience. Right, that I'm in here as the subject of experience and everything that else that happens are the objects of experience. The thing is we get a little carried away with that subjectivity and take it as absolute. Not in a particularly conscious way, but just as this existential position that we take. I'm in here, subject, and everything else, the world is out there, object. And then we struggle to close that gap, because the problem with that subjectivity is I feel basically apart from life. Everything else belongs, it's all there, the universe full of people and plants and trees and planets... And there's just one thing that doesn't quite fit and me, the subject. Right? So I'm right in the middle, but I'm somehow locked outside of the of all of that. And sometimes people have that kind of projection onto the natural world, for example, as if the natural world, oh, everything's happening in harmony. They forget that most of, a lot of things in the natural world are all eating each other. Right? But there's some sense that everything's just sort of... There's a sort of perfection in the natural world. And then uh, then there's this sort of human clumsiness that's apart from it. And yet, as we've been exploring in our practice, as we were mentioning earlier, when we actually explore this subjective body, right, this subjectivity, this sense that I'm here and the world is there, We can't find a center to this one. It can be a profoundly mm, shocking, profoundly illuminating practice, actually, to just look for the center of yourself. And all you can find is that your attention can keep going in and in and in and in, infinitely that the, the experience, that which seems to be inner, right, just keeps opening up and opening up and opening up it's a little like again with the the physics of that right, that idea of searching for the building blocks of the universe and the first to say, oh it must be atoms right, and, but then you open up the atoms Oh, there's just more stuff in there. I, I don't know what they are, because I'm not good at that stuff. But <laughs> electrons, right? And uh, positrons, <laughs> or neutrons, something. Some of you know better than me. But when you open those things up, what do you find? Oh, it just keeps opening up. And then we just think we need a bit more powerful microscope, and then we'll find the final thing. Oh, no. Things just keep opening up. Subjectivity... Makes it very hard to understand that, right? Subjectivity it works in terms of here and there, this and that. So the idea of infinite openness boggles the subjectivity, boggles the 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 material sense of self. It's hard enough to have a sense of intimacy of infinity out there. What do you mean? It just goes on forever. Just keeps opening up. Just keeps opening up. But somehow, that kind of outward reaching infinity is somehow a little easier to have a sense of. Maybe because we can just gaze into the night sky and sort of see the infinite reaches of life. But it's the same in the other direction. Outer infinity, we tend to call space. (laughs) And inner infinity, we actually call consciousness. But when you go inner and you open what's there, and you open what's there, you can't find this, uh, this assumed subjectivity turns out to have no center and no edge. And we sit here in meditation doing this simple practice, being in the body, noticing breathing, and just paying attention. And this simple practice starts to undo our sense of thingness. Because all we find is process. It starts to undo our reliance on knowing because we find it so reductive. And it opens us to the possibility of loving, which frees things up. And it undoes our sense of subjectivity because we can't find a center to this one I call me. And I can't find the edges. I can't find the place where my experience stops and the world begins. I can't find the place where the sound of the birdsong ends and my hearing of it begins. Some traditions refer to that loss of subjectivity or that, let's say, not loss of, but that... um, dropping the reliance on subjectivity as non-duality. And it's become a little loaded word. So I would, for now, I'd like to just use the word inclusivity. Whatever we find in our experience, that which we usually call subject and object, we find we're invited just to include it. This, too, is in my experience. Everything I see, everything I make an object out of, This is in experience. This person is here in experience. This sight is here in experience. This idea is here in experience. Nothing's left out. You're not apart from life. You couldn't be apart from life. And nothing is apart from you. Everything's included. Everything's here. This intimacy that we long for is already at the the very heart of all we're experiencing. Your body is the universe. So let it in, friends. Let it all in. Let it be loved and cared for, explored and met, gently and spaciously. It's all available. Life is longing to be taken into the embrace of your awareness, longing for us to drop our separateness and subjectivity, our isolating knowing, our reliance on thingness, and to drop into the embrace in which we're at home with everything else. This is the invitation of our practice. So there's uh, about half an hour before supper to hang out in the intimacy with things. Sitting, walking, reflecting in whatever way seems suitable or appropriate to you. Thank you.